the last week we started the official digging into uh, this uh, incredible little letter and uh, you know, Daniel uh, got us got us through uh, essentially the second half of the the chapter there right five through ten and uh, just that that verse or that chapter one verse seven walking in the light and uh, as uh, he himself is in the light is something to hang your hat on as we get rolling here again tonight. And uh, tonight, as you see in the outline there, you know, we were moving from just the, the content of you know, walking in the light and, and uh, the implications of all of that that we looked at last week. Uh, now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of, of dealing with the sin issue. Uh, that is going on and so we're going to just jump right in we're, we're going to um, go through verses uh, one through six tonight of chapter two and we'll uh, just dig into some of the wording some of the the greek that's in there uh, to help us understand some of the the tense of the greek you know past or present tense helps us to understand what then is going on in this section. And we'll have plenty of time to, to ask questions and to, to kind of stop along the way if we need to and dig into some stuff. So I'd love for someone just to read verse 1 uh, in and of itself. Someone read verse 1 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So we, we jump right in here with God giving us a standard uh, that we see there. Uh, giving us a standard for uh, what we're supposed to be like and giving us provision in the event of failure. <laughs> what we're supposed to live like and a provision if if we have failure, you know, danger, Houston, we've got a problem here type of thing. And when we jump right in, uh, John uses this phrase, my little children. And does anyone really understand, uh, has a good way to share, what does that mean, my little children? That we are little because Jesus spent he, he saved little children uh, that I can put my hand and I bless them. So here John is saying that we are the little children that we are blessed. Mm -hmm. We okay. are blessed by Jesus. That's great. Yeah, that's the great. It, it is a complete use of a, 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 you know, a matter of endearment. To, to us and yeah we're like we're like children you know in this case uh, this is this is speaking to the members of the family of God these are his people his children that he's talking to and he says right in there I am writing these things to you that you may not sin and one of the things we have to deal with, in, in life, in, in our relationship with the Lord, is understand, once again, God is perfect. God is perfect. His standard for his people is then what? Perfect. 
if we're his people, what is the standard? Perfection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is that is the standard. Uh, he would not be God if he said, these things I write to you so that you sin just as little as you can. That's not the standard. God cannot condone sin in any way, uh, even in the least degree. And I, I tell you, it's interesting when you stumble across people that uh, maybe come from different uh, faith backgrounds. Uh, I remember one person specifically, uh, one guy that I had a constant battle with where he did not want to call sin, sin. He wanted to call sin mistakes because what he was doing was he was creating a hierarchy of baby sins, big sins. And so really it was almost a works-based faith for him. It's like if I, if I stay pretty good, if I'm pretty good, that's okay with God. I'm not, I'm not making the big sense. I'm just making mistakes. He just, he couldn't say that those were the same sin with sin. And so one of the things that we have to understand is that sin is sin. And it's, it's, there's no degree to it. Now, of course, there are different ramifications for sin here on earth uh, and different things like that. But uh, even, before, even the, the, what we would consider some of the bigger sins like adultery, what, what did Jesus say to the woman that was caught in adultery? He, he said, I, I, what? Sin no more. So that's what we consider a big one. Some people do. Not, some don't this day, these days, I guess. But uh, that, that's, so John's starting us off with, this is the standard. This is the standard. And then he moves into this uh, provision. So the standard is, uh, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And what he was writing to, to us was walking in the light, walking in his ways, fellowshipping with him through the, the cleansed, cleansing blood of Christ that cleanses us from sins. So then walk in him. And then he says, but there's a provision in the event of failure. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. With the Father, and I'm going to dig into some of these, these words here. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, definition of advocate, anyone? One who is standing up for you, helping you. Comes, helps in the time of need. You know, this is our... We think of an ad, you know, like we have homeless advocates. We've got advocates in the court. We've got hospital advocates, you know, hey, this person needs to be treated correctly, this type of thing. So they're your advocate. Uh, this is exactly what we want to picture, but this is a sin advocate. You know, this is the, it, it, 
exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ offers for us when we sin. He immediately comes in, and what does he do? He restores fellowship. He restores fellowship with himself. Uh, it doesn't say if any man confesses his sins. As, as an advocate, the, the Lord seeks to bring us to the place where we do confess and forsake our sin. But this advocate, when we're his children, that, that happens already. He's our advocate. And there's something wonderful about that. Because once again, I want to dig into the word just a tiny bit here as we get started. We can't overlook this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Doesn't say with God, with Yahweh. Different wording here. With the Father, which implies what when we still sin? As believers, we're the little ones. As believers, what, what's, what's the difference here? There's not a complete severance of the adoptive relationship. Correct. We're still his children. Yeah. So, and, and you may want to think of it this way. Um, sin breaks fellowship. It doesn't, for the believer, sin breaks fellowship, but it doesn't break relationship. Okay. Sin breaks fellowship, but it doesn't break the relationship. When you are born again, when you become a child of God, one of my favorite songs that we sing, God is henceforth your father. The adoption, we believe in eternal security. We believe in a permanent adoption. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, what what does Satan try to convince us though, uh, of? What does he try to convince us? That we can lose our salvation. Bingo. And so Satan brings these accus accusations against us all the time, and we have an advocate that's different because our advocate is, according to this wording here, is what. His son, who is Jesus. righteous, Jesus. righteous. Last word. Last word. Last word for five hundred. Yeah. Um, it, 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 that 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 is an important word. He is a righteous defender. If you have an advocate that is evil, what will that advocate end up eventually doing? He'll throw you under the bus. Here we have the picture of the righteous defender. What the picture needs to be for us is God, the Father, when sin happens, Jesus automatically points to the finished work on Calvary. And so charge that to my account. That, that's, that's in essence what's going on here. And so that first verse, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So it's acknowledging that sin happens, but it's also acknowledging 
What? We have an advocate. We may not sin. So there is hope that we sin less or that we stop sinning. And I think that's important for us to understand as we go through this this little section here because uh, the wording in here is very clear that something's happening to the believer. John wants to start us off with what has happened and what the relationship's like and the reality of everything that's going on between us and, and the Father and the Advocate, Jesus, the just, the righteous. I feel like I'm, you know, watching some sort of uh, middle, mid-centuries type of, you know, the knight in shining armor, Jesus, the Advocate. But uh, that's, that's the picture there that really works. And then he moves into verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Someone read the last part of that, verse 2. Uh, well, the whole verse, but the verse kind of splits a, a thought up. If you read it correctly, it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then continue. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right. He is the propro- <laughs> propitiation, sorry, for our sins. And... Uh, We've, we've talked about this word, obviously, different times before. But uh, by dying for us, he frees us from the guilt of our sins, restores us to God by providing the needed sanctification, removing every barrier to the fellowship. Relationship was already created in belief. This is removing the fellowship barrier in sin. Uh, God shows mercy to us because Christ satisfied the claims of justice that need to happen. Um, let's be real here. It is not often that an advocate will pay for the client's sins. Um, most lawyers are not, I don't know, Richard, I don't know, if you, can, you probably aren't going to pay uh, personally for the Defendant that you may be going, you know, and defending, uh, you know, hey, if they're guilty and they're found guilty, what does the lawyer here do? <laughs> hey, it stinks to be you, dude. <laughs> but you were guilty. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not thinking that would be the case, but you can ask him later. Um, but you know, the, the the picture is Jesus is just so different. But because that's what Jesus has done and done. And John adds that he's not just satisfied the sacrifice for our own sins, but also for the whole world. That, that reminds me of uh, when someone brings an action on behalf of a client, you know, representing him. Sometimes it will go to a larger class of people and they'll have a class action. So, you know, not only is the person looking for what he wants, but sometimes they say, well, why don't we find other people to whom this thing that the, the grievance that we have will also apply. So it's like Jesus is on a class action for everybody. But not everybody, when I get letters for class action suits, I have the option to, to be part of that or not. And I think that's 
the same thing we have. We can yeah. accept it or not. Because uh, if, if you're not aware, people use this uh, little section of scripture to, to dig a theological battle um, in there uh, where it says uh, very clearly, for, uh, but also the sins for the whole world. Do, does anyone know what one group of people will say uh, about that? Yeah, Anthony? Uh, that everybody gets saved and everybody gets to go to heaven. Yeah, so there, there's that. There's, that, there's a lot of different variations <laughs> within there, but that's definitely one of them that's out there that people look at that verse. But the problem is, is they pull that out and then they don't read the context of the rest of the verses around it uh, to understand that that's an incorrect understanding. Uh, this does not mean that the whole world is saved, but what it does mean is what, what, what is Jesus' sacrifice sufficient for? Everyone. And I think another important layer there, because he doesn't use the word atonement. It's separate, there's a separate word for atonement. When we talk about the application of redemption. When you hear this word propitiation, really what's in view is that not only is Jesus the propitiation for the sins of Christians, while Joseph Smith is the propitiation for Mormons, and Muhammad is the propitiation for Muslims, but no, it's a... It's actually a statement of exclusivity that it, whoever you are in the world, if you're going to be saved, you have to be saved by the propitiation of Christ. So it's a, it's also a statement of exclusivity. Yeah. You, because it's you only can't one be that, saved apart from the propitiation. Of Christ. It's the only one that's sufficient. Exactly. It's yeah. the, it's the only. Everything else will fall short. Yeah. Um, and so it's sufficient, and that, that's the whole idea of the gospel. That's it. Um, yeah. It's only efficient. Yeah, it's a man's responsibility right there. Um, if all men were automatically saved, why would Jesus say, go? <laughs> go and tell the world, go and share the gospel. If, 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 because there's, a, there's people out there and no one goes to hell. You got more fun ways to spend your time yeah, it's if, like, if everybody's going to be saved. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, that just doesn't make sense. So anyway, um, it's also, um, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just important to remember that Jesus is the only sufficient Savior. Now, he is also sufficient for all men everywhere, but they must believe. Okay, so that's that's what's going on in, in verse two. Verse three then starts to dig into, okay, he is sufficient, but what does this mean for us and how we live? So verses three and four, someone read that. And by this we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. All right, so how do we know that we are believers? How do we know that we have said yes to Christ? We obey him. We obey. And I think... And so what's the test? Oh, okay. So let's not, let's not get there yet, Ron. Okay. <laughs> but... Uh, 
this is, you got to, in, in verses three through six, there's, there's at least four times in the Greek text, the word no pops in here. Uh, by this we know, we have come to know, whoever says I know, by this we may know that we are in him. Safe, important safety tip, God wants you to know something. And I think this is very important because it, the, one of the saddest things that for me as a pastor is to hear people second guess on whether they're saved or not. And, and just, just being scared about, am I saved? Am I saved? And I, don't get me wrong, I think it's good to consider who you are, but you don't have to worry and wonder. It's not a matter of guesswork on whether you're saved or not. God wants you to have assurance of salvation. The first no there in verse three, and by this we know, is present tense. So this is a progressive knowledge that's gained by experience. A progressive knowledge that's gained by experience. The sense is we are continually being able to know that we have come to know God. The second no is in the, the perfect tense. And by this we know that we have come to know him. The second no there is a perfect tense, and that emphasizes that we have come to know him in a real, genuine, and complete way. So the salvation is what? It's already done. You know, um, help me out and help others. When you speak of the perfect tense in Greek, uh, can you explain the difference between that and the imperfect? You know, the perfect doesn't mean that it's a one-time thing that uh, it's not like it has to be continuously believing, but it's a one-time action. Isn't that the, perfect? the perfect tense is done. When wouldn't that be the best way? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, we don't really have a proper English yeah. equivalent of a perfect tense, but the closest way to get to it would be that it may be something like eternal or eternally sealed, eternally done. It's something that doesn't it doesn't change. Whereas if it's if it's present, then it's it, then, then there's there's some sort of progress to it. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening now and it might move from like we know point past to point present to future yeah. and it moves. Yeah. Something that's in the perfect tense is something that doesn't move. It's sealed or locked in forever. So what what we know about God, knowledge of God, is a concept that covers not only what we quote unquote know about God, but also includes then a relationship with God that begins with faith. It includes a deepening relationship and fellowship with God that then is evidenced by love for him and obedience to him. When John says, by this we know that we have come to know him, um, the word this refers to what? 
And by this we know that we have come to know him. This. If we we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Um, That's also the present tense. The word keep there. Present, I'm sorry. Tense. Continual. Regular obedience to God's commands. So, one of the ways that you know that you are a Christian is then your desire to obey God. If you have no interest in doing what God says, if you have no interest in God's principles and his commandments, they're not really important to you, that's going to be a red flag that you may not be what? You may not be saved. Assurance of salvation is unattainable, everyone, without obedience to God's commands. It, it, it doesn't work. So then you have to go. Go ahead. You had a desire to keep his commands. Do you know anybody who keeps his commands? Well, and that's what we're going to get to second. Well, well that's first where of, we go back that's to, where you the go back to the advocate. Jesus, the righteous. You we go trust back to his obedience. You go back to the advocate, but it's also very important why we're building the sentence structure there with the word no as a movement from A to C, A to B to C to D. So in knowing him, you, you know him as a believer, that's sealed. But you're knowing him, you're growing which means that the sin, if you're growing in him, what is the sin supposed to be doing? It's a convex relationship. Yeah. As one goes up, the other one goes, goes down. up, one goes down. And the, the key then, and we have to get to the words there, is what does John mean by the word commandments? You're going to keep his commandments. Um, it could be really a restrictive meaning if you go down certain roads, or could he be using the word in the sense of the directive that would be broad enough for an application of every situation? From the examples of how John uses the word in his gospel, it probably means in every situation, in every ap- application uh, for every situation. Um, in uh, the immediate context of 1 John, the broader context of the Gospel of John, the answer is pretty clear. John's referring to Jesus' command that Christians love one another. But that's not the full extent of John's meaning here. The, John uses the word commands in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands in conjunction with Jesus' word in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, so you're attaching different things there. In verse 7, you also, uh, you know, the beginning of the next paragraph specifically deals with love for fellow believers. John uses command and word again. So what we can then see in the language that's going on there, basically anything that Jesus teaches His word is his command, his commandment for us 
to obey. Now, now we've got to spread the, the wings out a little bit more and go, all right, who wrote this? This whole thing. Yeah, the triune God. So what is included in the commands? God's word. All of it. Yeah. I was just going to add one of the, one of the uh, commentators that I was reading on this section pointed out the connection between, like you pointed out, keeping commandments, keeping the word. There's obviously a parallel there because of the way that he words it. But then what's the, and you may be getting to this in verse 5, what's the result? It's the perfection of the love of God yeah. being made manifest in the life of the believer. Rewind. How does Jesus himself summarize the law? It's, it's love. Love, and that's really love God, love others. Exactly. And so yeah. that's one of John's main themes throughout 1 John, as we'll continue to see, is this connection between love of God, love of neighbor as a summary of the whole law. And so that the, the, the height, the pinnacle of, you want to hear about legalism, law-keeping, whatever, well, no, the, the height of that, the peak of it, as well as the foundation, is actually love. It's a, it's a genuine, full-hearted affection for God and for neighbor. And that's what it actually means to keep the commandments. And then that becomes... This test, if you want to call it the, yeah. the test or the assurance or whatever you want to call it, becomes that overwhelming, overwhelming spring of love for God and for others. So anyway, that's yeah. a little side thing, but connected in there with the keeping the word, keeping the commandments, and yeah. the perfection of the love of God. So let's wrap up verse 3 real carefully here. There are at least three things that we can know. One, it's possible to know God. Um the Bible's clear that God can be known because he revealed himself in his word. Uh, obviously revealed himself specifically to mankind in Christ, but in his written word. Second, John says that you can know that you know God. There's a difference between having salvation and being assured of the salvation you have. That's why sometimes Christians have difficulty in the area of assurance. Uh, we, sometimes we have doubts. Um, but I, I'll, I'll tell you, my eternal destiny is not something I want hanging out in the air to try to figure out. I don't want to second guess it. I don't, I don't want to be living like that. I want to know about it. And um, I, for example, when you're dealing with health issues, you want to know what you're dealing with. You, you want to know that. There's nothing worse than not knowing what's going on with that. Um, you know, um, that type of thing. The, the third thing that we can know is that obedience to the commands of God is an evidence then. Um, as one, one author said, conduct is the best evidence of character. Conduct is the best evidence of character. Conduct is to character what leaves and flowers and fruit are to a tree. And we know 
that John is fond of this word no. He uses it 30 times in his letters. And uh, he wants us to know God's love. He wants us to know that we are his children. He wants us to know that there is a way to know that through obedience. And he wants us to grow in that. And some of the greatest lessons in life, everyone, are taught by experience. We're getting back to that word to know him, to grow in knowing him. Um, It's a progressive knowledge that comes through experience, that experience being obedient to the commands of Christ. I'll give you a sports way of looking at it. The difference between a rookie and a veteran in sports is the difference between a little experience and a lot of experience. The veteran who's played for a ton of years has this accumulated knowledge of the game that he's playing or involved in by the virtue of not just talent, but experience. And experience can only be learned by actually being in the game. You may have a lot of raw talent as a rookie. You may have even more talent than the veteran. But because the rookie is a rookie and doesn't have the kind of experience that the veteran has, over time in that early season, they're not going to play as well as a rookie. They're not going to be consistent. They're going to have a lot of hiccups and ups and downs because of the lack of knowledge of the game that only comes by experience. And that's what we kind of see pictured here in how we know Christ. By keeping his commands, the word keep means to look upon something as your treasure Guard it as your treasure. So you're keeping his commands as your treasure. Your attitude towards God's commands is that they are your treasure. You carefully guard this treasure, his commands. He's commanded you to love others, to love him specifically first. And then you read verse four. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commands is what? A liar. Liar, liar, paints on fire. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very true. And the truth is not in him. So what we see pictured here is someone who claims in summary, I have come to know Jesus, but the one who says that and does not keep God's commands with a regularity. Remember, this is a growing aspect here. What does John call them? A liar. Now, some people will read this and think, well, I don't always keep the commandments of God. I wish I could, but I try and fail. And this is, Dan, going towards your point as well a little bit earlier. You know, you can go, matter of fact, uh, today, when I think about it, I failed this many times, right? It's probably like that in certain days. So does that mean I'm not a Christian? That's not what John is saying. You don't press it too far in this. 
Because he's already said that you are sealed. You're an advocate. Your advocate's taking care of sin. What he is saying is if, you know, so he's not saying that you got to keep it perfectly, flawlessly, or, or you won't know if you're saved. Uh, why would we need an advocate if that's the case? No one has reached sinless perfection. John's made that clear. It's going to happen. We're not immune from sometimes breaking God's commands. But when we do, we need to practice 1 John 1, 9. Going back to what Daniel was talking about last week. So if we do fall, what do we do? We confess those sins. And I think that's, that's very important to understand what John's talking about uh, here in verse four is a consistency of life, a direction of life that's characterized by obedience. If I fall in love, if I say I'm in love with Christ as my savior, I believe in him, I'm claiming to love God. But if I fail, for example, in this one, um, let's say I fail to love my fellow Christian while I'm claiming to love God. He's saying you're a liar because it's not possible to do both at the same time. Yeah, Jen? Well, it also says that we're liars if we say we haven't sinned. Correct. So you, you, you've got this, this thing going on. The proper understanding here is in the verb tenses, once again, that John uses. These present tense verbs describe a lifestyle. A habitual lifestyle. We, we've said it multiple times, and so we'll say it again. The Christian has a trajectory of behavior that is characterized by obedience to God's commands. Thus, going back to what we talked about last week, if there's a trajectory, what does that mean we have to be doing? Walking. Walking in the light. Following the master. You know, that's that's the the thing here. Um, the basic trajectory of your life will be one of obedience to God. Now, on the other hand, if the trajectory of your life is away from God, now you may still do some good things along the way. You may get, uh, you know, I'll go to church every once in a while just to kind of feel better about things. You may do a little good here and there. <laughs> I feel a little better. You know, I helped someone today. Woo! But the problem is, if that's not the trajectory of your life, you know, the, the, the question we got to be asking then, what is the trajectory of my life? Now, I'm not saying that works saves. What is this, what is this all about again? This is evidence of the relationship in Christ is obedience to his command, is growing in him, it's walking in him. None of this is what, quote unquote, saves you. Remember, that's done. But we want to see, was that actually done? And if, and if I'm turning away from these present tense verbs going to a present tense disobedience, 
of God, what am I doing, according to John? I I am lying about my relationship with God. I I am a liar. I am self-deceived. The truth is not in you. Now, to go to someone these days and say, hey, if you're not living according to God's word, if you are you actually your trajectory of your life is going the other direction. And I think we can think of people pretty clearly in our lives that claim to be believers, but the long-term trajectory has been going the other way. What would John say to someone that the trajectory is going the other way and they claim to be a believer? What would John say to them? Liar. Liar. Now that would not be cool to say these days, right? Maybe we would try to soften it and say, maybe you've got some integrity problems. Right? Have you heard that type of thing? Or, or like I said earlier, well, you know, I'm making mistakes, but at least not the biggies. But that language doesn't help. You know, uh, I could hear John's response. If, if, if people told you, to, man, you should not tell people they're liars about their faith in, in so many words. I, I really could uh, kind of say John said, would, I, I think John would be saying as in John 8, I think, uh, well, Jesus called people liars. You're nothing but a whitewashed tomb. You're 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 a liar. Well, they would tell you. They would, they would tell you you're yeah. yeah. And and and, and actually and and you know and that's obviously a no no these days. You know, don't judge me. Okay, I'm not worried. Don't worry about me. Worry about God judging. Exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm just sharing what what the trajectory looks like. And it doesn't look good. Well, you're judging me. No, I'm, I'm not, quote unquote. What, what I am concerned about is true judgment found in God. And you're going the wrong direction. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are called, the pastor specifically is called in 2 Timothy 4, 2, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. So when you are rebuking someone, you're saying you're wrong. You're a liar. Uh, John is writing here to combat some sort of Gnosticism, false teaching that was evidence in the church at the time he wrote this. And um, one of the things that was being taught during that time frame was antinomianism a fancy word that means what if anyone knows against against law get do whatever you want which that sounds oddly familiar (laughs) 
to what we are today. And they made light of sin in believers' life. They were just, they're just like, eh, that doesn't matter. I, I, I will tell you, you know, uh, Danette, during the prayer time tonight, I was moved by your passion for what we see going on in our world. And I am disturbed by the moral indifference of not just the world. What, who is John talking to here? People that profess that they're Christians. So he's, he's, he's not even going over there. That's, that's a foregone conclusion that people that don't know God aren't going to believe and aren't going to live like, like God uh, wants them to in many cases, especially in our culture now where we are very clearly multiple generations away from what Deuteronomy told us to do as parents and to teach the children the ways of the Lord. Even if they aren't believers, they've been taught a right and wrong. And in this case, in our world today, in our culture, it's been multiple generations of less and less and less and less and less than that being taught. So seeing what's going on in the world today is really actually not surprising. But what John would be going here is what he would be saying is, you know what? And for me as well, and I'm not saying I'm John, I'm just saying I believe this is the case. I am disturbed by the moral indifference of many, many Christians today. I'm not talking about moral failures of Christians at certain points, because once again, that's, that's evidence of our sinful humanity and, and our trajectory may go but it's going to go back and we're going to be right with the Lord. What I'm talking about is a mindset and attitude in which many that are in churches today think that because they are eternally secure, it doesn't matter how you live. And if they stay on that path, they're not. The trajectory's wrong. Yeah, Ron, I, I was in a rant, so you had to wait. Um, so... Just don't don't touch verses five and six yet. Okay. So what we have, because what you're saying, Pastor, is he's addressing this to people that say they believe, and he's given us very simple tests that Correct. say you believe, you obey the commandments, you love the brethren, and so something Paul said somewhere. Uh, examine yourself whether you be in the faith, and I think that's what we're seeing in John here. Mm -hmm. Little little tests along the way. Do you do you believe? Uh, you know, do you obey his commands? Do you love the brethren? And I think he gives us a couple other tests as we go through the epistle. And it's again, it's because it is not addressed to the world. This isn't a a epistle to the world. It's to those who are in the church and are saying they're Christians. Or believers, and these are the tests, the little tests you get. Correct. Okay. And uh, the whole idea of it doesn't matter how you live is exactly what John is refuting yes. here. Uh, and then and, and, and then it moves on. 
So does someone someone read verse four and then finish out five and six for me? Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Yeah, verse Whoever six. claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's what Mike said. I know yours probably. No, it gets the point across. So, uh, obedience illustrates mature love for God. Verse 5, we we have John employing one of his favorite words, the word love. And he turns from a negative expression of things in verse 4 to positive Whoever keeps his word is a phrase that means then whoever is in the consistent habit lifestyle of keeping his word. And once again, that word keep means to guard. And he's talking about God's commandments, God's word. Um, there's no difference in, in between his commandments and his word. It's the totality of of all that he has given us. It's all from God. It's all the word of God, his, his commands, his precepts. Anything that God teaches you from the Bible is from God. And it's our responsibility to obey that. We don't pick and choose. You know, John says, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Uh, the love of God, what does that mean? Well, it can mean God's love for me, or it can mean my love for God. And in this case, the context helps us. The context here is about our obeying God's commands because we love him. So the phrase love of God means our love for God. It's our love for God that is being perfected. The word perfected here in the original language means brought to maturity. The importance here, that phrase uh, has been or is perfected, it's passive, it expresses the fact that it is God, not us, who perfects our love. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Your, your love of God is a mature love when you love God and your love for him is the grounding for how you live. Mature obedience flows out of that love. Yeah, Ron? Yeah, um, Jesus says that I always do what pleases the Father. And again, we have to remember we're in a family relationship. And if we are part of God's Father, our family, and he is our Father, and Jesus is our older brother, then we want to do things that are pleasing to the members of our family. And if we don't, we probably don't belong to the family because we don't love the family. Yeah. And, and the Christian, it's not a, I need to love God. 
It's a, I want to love God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. So John is just repeating here what Jesus said about 50 years earlier. Upper room, Last Supper, John was there. Heard Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience to the Lord's commands is the evidence of our love for him. So external conformity to God's commands is obviously first based off of our internal desire of conformity based on the love for the one who gave us the commands. Uh, don't say that you love Jesus today if you're not obeying Jesus. If you do, John is going to look you square in the eye again and say to you, liar. And, and that's, you know, so true. We have so many people today that say, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live this lifestyle that is obviously completely against what God's word says. And there's a lot of different lifestyles. I'll just think of one. There's a lot of different lifestyles that go completely against God's plan. You know, for example, one that's kind of not even on the radar anymore is people living together outside of marriage. Male and female living together outside of marriage. Man, in our world today, Satan has moved the ball so far down the road that that one seems like no biggie. But the problem is, that's how it works. That's, that's how it started. And, and the trajectory, once again, this is based off of trajectories. It's based off of, you know, we've talked about before, plumb lines. It starts small, ends way off. So if Jesus gives you a command, positive, negative, no matter what it is, if you love Jesus, that's reason enough to obey it. I want to obey his word. And love that bears the fruit of obedience then is mature love, which then proves that as we grow in Christ, sin does what? It diminishes. Love that bears fruit is mature love. Most of the time when a young couple get married, their, their love is very real, but it's not mature, right? It's like everything's a crisis. Every, you know, there's this, it's like, oh no, this, that, the other thing, all of that. But over time in marriage, we learn to mature in our love for our spouse no matter what goes on externally because internally I've already made a decision. I want to love her. And that's how our relationship with Jesus should be. As we grow in our understanding of him and his love for us and we obey him, we grow in our, our love for him. Our love for Jesus is ever widening ever deepening and that principle of obedience then is used in the life of a Christian over everything 
And it's an evidence of genuine salvation. Obedience is not an avenue to salvation. It is an evidence of salvation. Because salvation is by grace alone. So it doesn't mean you can keep God's commands in your own way. And then receive perfect love from God as reward for um, just being there. It's like, no, 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 no. There's going to be evidence going the right way. So John is saying very clearly that when God's love reaches you, it's not only bringing about salvation, it enables obedience. Love for Christ, love in him, as one commentator said, does not leave people unchallenged or unchanged. Last part of verse five, by this we know that we are in him. In him means the state of salvation brought about by Christ in that relationship with God that is based on faith expressed in that attitude that is correct towards sin, a right attitude to other believers and true love for them. Going into verse six then, where it says, the one who says he uh, abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And that's Christ. You know, um, John is saying, if you are a true believer, it is reflected in how you live. Your life should be like Christ. You should pattern your life after him. And I hear people say it all the time. Well, if I do some of the things that the Bible says I should be doing, if I do some of those things where I work, uh, I, I may get fired. Well, what did Jesus say about following him and repercussions that may happen? Does anyone want to? Before man, before my father. I mean, that's the ultimate. That's what, yeah, but he also says, what are some of the ramifications for following him? The world is going to persecute. persecute. They're going to not just persecute, the world's going to hate you. You know, so that that's there. Um, well, you know, if I do that, uh, well, I, this is the way I, I, I think we should look at this. Who do I fear more? God, God or man? God. Who do I fear more? Or even more interesting, based off of this section of Scripture, who do I love more? My boss, the money, whatever, for God. Who do I love? And I think that is key. It comes down to the issue, is God real? Is Jesus our Savior? Do I love him supremely? It's, it's an issue of love. And John speaks of that pattern of obedience there in verse 6. 
how, how did Jesus walk? When you think about the totality of all of Scripture and what we know about Jesus, Jesus was perfect, right? So how did he walk? Going back to the beginning, he didn't sin. So he always obeyed his father. He obeyed his parents. He, his love for people, his faithfulness to scripture, his moral purity, his selflessness, his servant heart. And we can go on and on and on. It's all a reflection of I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 14, 31. Paul said in Romans, love is the fulfilling of the law. And when John speaks of being in him, he's using the language of union with Christ. The test of this union with Christ is imitation. It is. You know, we, we try to imitate a, a lot of different people in life. Uh, people imitate uh, certain entertainers or music or successful business people, sports heroes, uh, parents, a pastor, uh, a Bible study teacher, other Christians. I, I, I had a time younger in my ministry that uh, I caught myself trying to sound like the youth pastor guy I worked with uh, when I first was in youth ministry, I was I was imitating Cal Jernigan, <laughs> and but that's kind of the picture there. Uh, people can be a good example for us, but ultimately our pattern for living must be Christ. Paul says even now imitate me, but how does that finish? As I imitate Christ. So what Paul is saying is I am imitating Christ. So if you want someone in the flesh right around with you or writing these words right next to you here, take a look at me as I'm looking at him and moving in the right direction. No, so we're not to judge others or compare ourselves with others. That's what it's saying. Uh, but Christ is the example. We have to compare ourselves to Christ. And, uh, and so he is the only perfect example of perfect man. Now, uh, uh, can I throw in a little story here that I heard from J. Vernon McGee? Sure. It, okay. J. Vernon McGee said he heard this whimsical story about a man who was giving a lecture to people and he was talking about the perfect man. So he asked the audience, has anybody ever seen the perfect man? And this, he said this little guy in the back, uh, kind of a Mr. Milktoast, raised his hand. And so he said, have you seen the perfect man? He says, well, not really, but I've heard about him. And he says, well, who is he? And the guy says, well, that was my wife's first husband. <laughs> All right. Well, to delete that from the... But no, yeah. It, 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 okay. I can't make that work. Um, but the per only perfect man we have that we yeah. need to know about is Christ. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of the faith. Uh, to live as Jesus lives, lived means to commit ourselves to follow him in full discipleship. 
uh, we cannot duplicate the purity of the life of Christ. That's why we need him as our advocate. But we can and should be intentionally endeavoring to imitate him in every aspect of life. And it's not an option. We don't have the option to choose according to our own will because our own will, our old self is flawed. It's sinful. Live in him. Union with him means we're walking in him in faith. We then have to understand that we lack the wisdom to live for Christ on our own strength. That's why we have to abide in him and walk as he walked. And so... We're just going to end with this tonight. It is always good to see how you're doing on John's test of living in obedience. So your assignment tonight is to grade your own paper. To grade your own life. And are you passing the test of living in obedience to him? Oh, yeah.